the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello, joining you on this fine Monday morning from an extremely sunny, though still autumnal feeling Berlin. My name is Daniel Freeber. I am the host of today's packed episode of the Cycling Podcast as we round up the action on what you could call the last weekend of men's cycling season, certainly the men's, across various different locations, terrains and disciplines from road to gravel. Yes, don't adjust your radio transmitters. There is gravel in this episode and also track. I was in an indoor cycling stadium, we'll call them that, over the weekend but more on that traumatic experience later. Now, to help me make sense of it all and to convalesce from it all, I'm joined today from... I thought he was still at his low-altitude Zone Zero training or parenting camp in Tenerife, but he's not there, um, his holiday in Tenerife. But it is two-time Tour de France stage winner, Giro d'Italia stage winner, two-time Vuelta a España stage winner, Liège-Bastogne-Liège winner, and most importantly for this week, 2014 Giro di Lombardia winner. As of this week, he'll also be an acclaimed author. His memoir, Chased by Pandas, drops on Thursday, I believe. On the eve of the aforementioned Lombardy or Lombardy victory in 2014, he stormed out of a team dinner on account of an entrecot, i.e. a steak, which is exactly the kind of Epicurean petulance that will always win someone favour on this podcast. It is the man, the Dan, the panda of Tamworth in the West Midlands, Ireland, and La Masana in Andorra. It is Dan Martin. How are you, Dan? How was your holiday? Back where the air is thin. Yeah, it was good. It was good. Uh, but yeah, good to be home and back in my office talking yeah, talking to you again, actually. And you're slightly, well, you're not under the weather, but you anticipate being under the weather later in the week. Is that right? Potentially. We'll find out later. We'll find out later. My wife, uh, we've just, my wife just tested positive for COVID, so I should probably, uh, yeah, uh, we need to uh, inform the correct people. So I'm supposed to be doing some signings this week in... Uh, in the Wirral. So uh, in Nantwich and Neston, at, uh, at various bookshops. So hopefully it all goes to plan still and we'll, we'll, be, uh, we'll be good. And well, that, that little nugget, um, not a chicken nugget, a, a nugget, since we are talking about Epicurean delights, um, about the entrecote that was extracted from your book, which does, as I say, drop on Thursday. Very much looking forward to that, or you should be looking forward to that, listeners, because I've read a lot of it already, and what a cracking read it is. Dan, we should introduce our other guest, um, also joining us today, not from the former Lakeside Tenuta, where he once vied with George Clooney for the title of Lake Como's most eligible bachelor. It is the former CSC Sky and Green Edge PR Svengali slash spin doctor, the former Leopard Trek team manager. He is the fluffy white cat stroking genius behind a weekly column in Denmark's fanciest newspaper, a Californian winery and the cycling podcast biggest ever restaurant bill. He is Brian Nygaard. Brian, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you. I have the same... Potentially the same predicament as as Dan, because my wife tested positive for COVID as well. Uh, but I am not uh, together with her at the moment. She's on holiday, probably from me in Denmark. So it's just me and the fluffy cat. So hopefully I'll stay clear. How is the big white fluffy cat? He's, he's not he's not all white, is he? He's kind of grey, white. Yeah, t- sort of tabby. Mottled. Yeah, tabby. Macro, His name is? A- Apricot. His name is Micho, which is, actually means cat in Italian. I, that was a strategic decision at my end because then I can actually anyone can call him back. Not that not he that he comes to anyone but me in case he runs away. So he's just called Kitty Cat in Italian, Michu. 
And what a fine-looking fella he is. We should post some pictures on social we media should. of your we cat. Should. I feel that he would become a listener favourite. Um, certainly more pop. Certainly more popular than any of us. Um, chaps, we're going to start. We've got a lot to get through today. As I said, very different races, disciplines. We're going to start with the news roundup. Since last week's episode, above all, there has been, well, there's been a hell of a lot of cycling. So well done to everyone who took part in that. Uh, last Monday, we had the Sparkassen Munster, Munsterland Giro, which was won by the young Dutch sprinter Olaf Koy ahead of Jasper Philipsen on Tuesday, not Wednesday, as I think I mistakenly said in last week's pod. Today, Pogacar won the Trevali Varesine ahead of Sergio Higuita and Alejandro Valverde in, Ital- in Italy. Italy. Meanwhile, in Belgium, Lorena Wiebes was victorious in the Banchime Banche, while Christophe Laporte of Jumbo Visma continued his outstanding season by attacking with the Norwegian Rasmus Tiller in the finale, then dropping Tiller to finish and triumph alone um, in the men's race. On Thursday was the final warm-up for Lombardia, although many of the favourites for that race didn't take part in Il Gran Piemonte. On a relatively flat course with a significant kink nonetheless in the middle, Ivan Cortina of Movistar won a 20-man sprint for just the third victory of his career. Same afternoon, Jasper Philipsen avenged his near-miss in Munsterland by winning Paris-Bourges. That then took us to the weekend when Tadej Pogacar took the third monument of his career and second straight in Lombardia by outsprinting Enric Mas. Much, much more on that shortly. In Lombardia was also the last ever race, barring a sudden change of heart and pension plans for Vincenzo Nibali, Alejandro Valverde and also Mikel Nieve, who sadly crashed out of the race and broke his collarbone in the process. Talking of farewells, Philippe Gilbert celebrated his on Sunday at Paris Tour, which was won for the second time in a row by Arnaud Demar. Meanwhile, Mark Cavendish rode the last race of his quick-step alpha vinyl career, um, but not his career. We expect him to announce well, that he's joining another team in the coming days. Um, that was at the Memorial Rick Van Steenbergen, finishing second behind Tim Merlier. The Women's Tour de Romandie also concluded on Sunday with Ashley Mormon Passio. Uh, winning both the GC, well, she had also already won the Queen's stage. I think that was on Friday or Saturday. The final bits of action at the weekend, and they were very significant. Pauline Ferrand-Prévot and Gianni Vermeers were the winners of the inaugural Gravel World Championships in Cittadella, Italy, in the women's and men's races, respectively. Um, Prévot, uh, Ferrand-Prévot, who we expect to be unveiled as Ineos Grenadiers, first ever female signing in the coming hours. Chaps, last week we talked about this imminent announcement of a big signing at Ineos Grenadiers. And one thing I gathered at the weekend when I went to Grenken for Filippo Ganna's hour record attempt was that it would not be Primoz Roglic. It is going to be F, um, sorry, PFP, as they call it in France. Um, talking of Ganna and ours, well, he did break Dan Bigham's hour record in Grenken, Switzerland on Saturday. I was there. Um, he set a new mark of 56.792 kilometers, and he even beat Chris Boardman's best human effort set in 1996 and then now Superman, not Superman, not Superman Lopez, the Superman position by 417 meters. Um, as I said, even more sensationally, I overcame a lifelong aversion to track racing to go and see it. And again, we will hear more about that later. Final couple of things. 
before this turns into another eight-hour podcast, we mentioned Nairo Quintana leaving our Samsic last week. Well, since then, two mooted suitors. What a terrible rhyme that is. Um, Astana and ag 2 Citroën have both said they're not interested in signing Nairo Mann. Um, Roglic won't be joining Ineos Grenadiers either. We mentioned that. And very last thing, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago the likelihood of next year's Giro d'Italia finishing in Rome and not Trieste, as was previously reported. Well, I believe that will now be the case, meaning that the whole race caravan will be expected to travel over 700 kilometres on the penultimate night of the race for the final stage in the Italian capital. Now, one of our unofficial weekly features that we've introduced is Brian Nygaard's PR surgery. Now, Brian, I just thought I'd ask you quickly, what do you think of the optics of this? We talked about this in the Vuelta, the very long second transfer in particular across the country um, at a time when there's a lot of concern about climate change and CO2 emissions. And this seems to me extremely gratuitous and unnecessary to go to Rome where the Giro d'Italia has never really been at home for various reasons. What do you think? Yeah, I don't think they're building a very good case for themselves on this one, Daniel. It's also, you know, we, we talk about sustainability, we talk about limiting uh, our carbon off print and this is not a, a good way, it's not a good sign, it's not a good message and because especially the Giro, I think it sort of often oscillates between being picking what would be the hardest possible race course to adding this postcard element of Italy. And in this case, the, the postcard wins. And it's it's a logistical nightmare. It would be a logistical nightmare to get into Rome and out of Rome regardless. But uh, finishing the second last day so far away is, is just, I think it's a bit hopeless. And, and anyone who's been to Rome recently, unless they start uh, repaving most of the roads around Rome, today they're going to have they're going to have an issue finding uh, reasonable race roads uh, on the last day of the year it's just it's just unnecessary and it, it just any other the problem from a pr point of view any other initiative that they aim at promoting themselves via in terms of sustainability just turns out to be, be a bit wishy-washy because this will always sort of be the overriding question mark over their decision making when when they decide to do it this way it also, I suppose, reinforces the unfortunate image that the Giro has had over the last few years of being, of the three Grand Tours, the one that will most willingly sell its soul for a quick buck, unfortunately, because I think... But, yeah, know, the... it's interesting you say that because you know, when you look at the, how the race director has changed over the years, I, I definitely think that was the case during the, the, the tenure of, Ale, of uh, Angelo Somignan. Who, want, who couldn't mm. get the race hard, rid, ridiculous, and logistically impossible. Uh, he, he always tried to add more to that. And then I think when uh, Aquarona came on, it, it, things became more balanced, more international. And I think um, Veni sort of, he, he's a little bit in between those two extremes. Dan, just quickly from you, I mean, from a well, from a journalist point of view, we, I won't be going. It'll probably, I'll be with Brian, I guess, at the Giro d'Italia. We will not make that 700 kilometer journey because, it's, as I said, it's completely unnecessary. We won't gain a lot from it. But what will the riders think? I mean, on the one hand of the ledger, you've got a potentially quite spectacular finale if you get good weather. And I'm not sure exactly where they're planning on finishing, maybe in the shadow of the Coliseum. Um, but on the other You've also got that inconvenience. I mean, what what would you have thought of this as a rider? It's exactly that point. It's just uh, you have to jump on a plane 
after three weeks of racing and go and do what is yeah not it's never the most enjoyable day of racing anyway because you, it's not obviously it's almost destined to be a sprint so it's uh yeah especially with the tt this year on the on the penultimate stage i believe it's going to they're every saying it's going to be a, a mountain tt so yeah it's you need to take a flight anyway but to go all the way down to rome and obviously with the team staff and how, like a lot of times that you won't even get all of the team staff travel down there so it, it really does it will just be a, a skeleton staff because all you need is the team cars really and uh maybe the team bus but the truck will certainly go straight back to base and obviously that it isn't just the drive down to rome it's all the team vehicles essentially to make that same trip back up north the day after the race because obviously a lot of the teams will be based in either northern italy spain or even northern yeah. europe so it, it, it it's it isn't just the 700 kilometers it's almost double that because of the the the, the mm. return journey and uh it's an environmental well, there issue aren't, there, aren't think... any, there aren't any world tour teams with service courses in abruzzo either so they will all be going <laughs> <laughs> they will all be heading north exactly and it, and it's just a case of yeah i mean it'd be interesting to see where the rest of the route takes the race because i'm sure they will pass rome at some point as well earlier and well they start they, relatively close to rome i mean they start the the race we know is going to start on the adriatic coast in um is it pescado near pescada and yes. uh, it's that's you know three four hundred kilometers from rome just across the middle of the country so relatively close i say i mean the race doesn't really have a relationship with rome so it would make you wonder if it is actually a financial incentive or is this a long-term trying to build a relationship with this with the area well chaps um that is the Giro d'Italia that's still a few months away so we look forward to the race presentation the route the full route presentation in a couple of weeks but speaking of races run organized by RCS uh, it was in Lombardia at the weekend and that's going to be the focus for us today on the podcast and it's time for the least popular feature in the world of po- podcasting um both by both from the listener's point of view and from the point of view of the person who has to do it um it is the race summary time trial and on start ramp today in his skin tight aerodynamic panda leotard it's dan martin dan i'm gonna count you in you've got 90 seconds to tell us what happened lombardy in the weekend three two one off you go this is the falling leaves although this year it looked more like summer when you saw the uh the weather Starting in Bergamo, beautiful city, place where I obviously crossed the line first. Always a great place to start, great crowds. Race unfolded as we all expected, basically. Very strong breakaway, went away after, what, 30, 40 kilometers once the terrain started getting hard. And yeah, one of the hardest additions we've seen in recent years, 4,900 meters climbing, just led to a gradual wearing down process as the teams took control. Obviously, Pog, Pogacar being the outstanding favorite. His team were really largely seen at the front, but I think Jumbo Visma had a bit of a card to play in making the race harder and harder as the race went on. Everyone was always expecting it to be a technical finale with the addition of this double, this little circuit in Como with the double climbing of San Fermo and then Chiviglio. Seen the race exploded before the first time on San Fermo on the descent. Always said before that the, uh, as we said last week, the descents in Lombardia are often more important than the climbs. And as it so it proved, as the race was on before the climb race had even started, the, the climb of San Fermo. And then it all came down to Chiviglio, a big battle there, uh, attacking racing, but quite predictable in who the protagonists were with Mass and 
Pogacar being the outstanding, well, the strongest climbers. Landa causing a bit of a surprise, came, kind of came from nowhere after a uh, yeah, subdued performance of Walter to get to uh, to hang on for a little bit. But then it came down to uh, yeah, a sprint between Mass and Pogacar. But despite them both putting the intensity of attacks, it looked like they were content to sprint it out. And I think Mass actually caused a bit of a surprise by pushing Pog quite close. And uh, yeah, but Pog, yeah, despite a tentative glance over his shoulder, brought it home for a second victory and he's still unbeaten, which is an incredible statistic in Lombardia. Well done. Slightly outside the time limit, but we'll call that a tribute to Lars Vandenberg, the Group Armour FDJ rider, who deserves our congratulations for finishing Lombardia out of the time limit. He finished 32 minutes, 55 seconds behind Tadej Pogacar. But fair play to him for finishing Lombardia because there were a lot of DNFs. And I guess that, particularly with the circuit, um, the riders, they went through Como, well, obviously a couple of times, they did the San Fermo de la Battaglia a couple of times. So the, when you get that sort of configuration, you always get a lot of riders climbing off, don't you, Dan? And there were a lot of DNFs at the weekend, particularly last race of the, of the season. A lot of people probably had their eyes on that, well, that end of season party that I guess took place for a lot of them in Como in the evening. So well done, Lars Vandenberg and just to run down the top 10, so it was Pog, um, Tadej Pogacar winning, Enric Mas second, Mikel Landa third, Sergio Higuita fourth, Carlos Rodriguez in fifth, Alejandro Valverde in his last race sixth, Balka Molomar seventh, Rudy Mollard with an excellent ride in eighth, Roman Bardet ninth, and Adam Yates tenth. Chaps, let's hear, shall we, from Tadej Pogacar, as you said, Dan, the owner still of an of an impeccable unbeaten record in Lombardia. Really amazing uh, to come back and to repeat the victory in uh, yeah, uh, the teamwork today. I cannot uh, say how grateful for I am for the team. They did so, such an amazing job. And to pull it off, yeah, uh, for the last race of the season for uh, Lombardy is, uh, is uh, amazing. Is it the race scenario you wanted? Yeah, uh, race went just how we wanted, and uh, yeah, try to to attack on Chivillo, uh, but uh, Mas was uh, clearly on the same level as me on the climb, so yeah, uh, we tried to cooperate until final, so uh, yeah, it went uh, perfect. After what happened in the Giro d'Emilia, were you very confident to beat him still here? Yeah, because uh, yeah, in Emilia I was straight from Australia, and I felt uh, every day better since since then. And uh, yeah, already in Trovali I felt uh, really great. So I know that uh, I knew that today should be should be good. Like so. with this victory, how do you rate your 2022 season? Ah, I would say uh, almost perfect. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. 
You may have heard of the Super Sapiens podcast because we've mentioned it before in these slots. Well worth a listen. One of the episodes I enjoyed most recently was Dr. Federico Fontana, who is one of the scientific brains behind Super Sapiens. And he talks in detail about how his glucose responds to all sorts of different things, including having become a father quite recently. That's uh, really worth a listen, the Super Sapiens podcast, hosted by Dr. David Lippmann and Xylon Van Eck. But another podcast to listen out for, and another voice who will be familiar to long-term listeners, is the Team Novo Nordisk podcast. Now, all of Novo Nordisk's riders are type 1 diabetics, and so they have to manage their glucose levels because it's critical for their health not just for their performance you'll have heard sam brand of team novo nordisk talking about that in the cycling podcast recently and the team novo nordisk podcast is well worth a listen to you'll find both of those wherever you listen to the cycling podcast if you want to find out more about super sapiens go to supersapiens.com Vince la 116esima edizione de Il Lombardia dalla Slovenia per World Team Emirates Tadej Pogacar! Tadej Pogacar vince il Lombardia 2022. Ed ora, signore e signori, in onore del vincitore della Lombardia numero 116, l'inno nazionale della Slovenia. Now, boys, first of all, well, I should say that we heard there the podium presentation in Lombardy, some uh, more expertly harvested sound effects from Brian Nygaard. Um, thanks for that, Brian. You were in Como at the weekend. We're going to talk about that. But I should say also that I was very adamant last week. I argued passionately that Como is the best venue for the finish of Lombardy. And, you, no, and, you, you didn't. Know, no, I was proved right. Yeah, I was proved right. I mean, <laughs> you know, there was a, I, I seem to recall there was a long monologue from me about how Como is the superior option over Bergamo. The, you know, the breathlessness of that San Fermo della Battaglia finish and the romance of the landscape, um, the views over Lake Como. And as I said, I was vindicated. To be fair, it does raise an interesting question that it was quite a predictable final. So perhaps you are right sense, in the fact that I think before the start, we knew it was almost written that Pogacar and Enric Mass, we kind of, well, some had said that Vingegaard would be involved in the final in some way with Triviglio being such a hard climb. But I, like, obviously, I, I think we also agreed that he did, he would lack the endurance after not racing that far, that distance. And, you know, so it's, it was, it almost came down. It was, it was, you could have predicted, could have written that script, how it played out before the start of the race. Which, but Dan, would that not be the case? But, with Tane Pogacar now, I think most of us would accept that he's a guy who can win 15, 20-man sprints. I mean, if he'd been riding Gran Piemonte when Ivan Cortina won the other day, I'd, I wouldn't have ruled him out there. Is it? Is there any way you can design a Lombardy course that isn't perfect for for Tane Pogacar unless, you know, you turn the Giro di Lombardia into, I don't know, Cremona, Mantova, you know, and have it across the, have it across the, the, the Po Basin? I was actually agreeing with your argument from the other day that the uh, the finish in Bergamo would potentially add a little bit more jeopardy as far as 
yeah, creating that climbs a long way from the finish and having that idea of oh, who, what, what's going to happen. Whereas this course, it was quite obvious that everybody was going to wait for Chiviglio. The strongest guy at the top of Chiviglio or two guys would go to the finish line and sprint it out. It's almost like a, it, it was, it was scripted. Well, so I was actually agreeing with your idea that Bergamo was better. I just think that because Lombardy is such a prestigious race, and because it's a climbers classic, it it off. I mean, it goes without saying. I think that it will be won by the strongest climber who can also finish, and that that happens to be now and probably for the next decade potentially Pogacar. I, I think the majestic views of the Lake Como and the, the, all of that climbing in such a small amount of kilometers at the finish will, even if it's predictable, we we still. I think we want to see that type of racing. I do, anyways. Definitely. No, I think. I mean, it was it was a beautiful race. The weather was fantastic, and it was an exciting race as well because that that addition of the second San Fermo della Battaglia um, before the Civiglio it did lend a sort of intensity to the race, and also the. The, there was a second phase of... It was a race of two halves, wasn't it? It was a very hard first, I don't know, 100 kilometers or so, which a lot of the riders talked about afterwards. Um, but you know, probably a lot of TV viewers didn't tune in in time to, to see much of that. But then from the Gizalo, from the fight really into the bottom of Gizalo, it was breathless and it was all important, everything we saw after that point. I mean, chaps, just tactically speaking, there was some sort of confusion, certainly on the Italian commentary on Eurosport, about how late UAE were were taking control. And they took control basically halfway up the Gizalo in Chivenna. The, the Gizalo itself is a climb of two halves. And the second half is, is well, it, it's not two halves because it's really, um, the second part is, is shorter than the first. But that was where they took it on. And then they didn't really leave the front of the race from that point. But on the, there were a few people who thought that was quite late. And they wondered why, with five or six men still there, like the Formula Hirschi and and Ulisi, why they hadn't done that earlier? Maybe at the bottom of the Gizalo. I Dan, think, what did you think? Oh, sorry, so, no, you can go for it, Brian. No, I think for the way I saw it, for several reasons. First of all, because the descent was so long, so they would need to do a lot of pulling. Uh, on the way to the foot of Chivilio, and because Chivilio is so hard, and because there were so many good climbers potentially left in the final with UAE taking control they would have to have a lot of horsepower for let's just say for the first even less than first half of Chivilio because it's I mean it's 4k basically at 10% so it's a race deciding uh, climb so they would have to have some very strong riders and if they if they burn it all off and like you said Gisalo is, is a climb in two parts and the first part is definitely the hardest so if they started early just just being one guy less potentially on Chivilio, I think would have made a, a difference that wouldn't be in the favor of Pugaccio. You missed the most important point there, though, that they didn't need to. Like, Pogaccio actually likes a race when he's it's out of control. Mm. And if if there's no if one team's controlling it, if they go to the front, it almost makes the race easier for everybody else because it's a constant pace, it's a steady pace, and they're they're riding the weakest rider out of that six. Where they kind of let the race go a little bit and kind of let other teams take over because it's harder, yeah, if that. The, exactly, and and Pogacar actually mm. embraces that type of racing and they they're riding with confidence. I mean, that's where you see you that's where they're at at the moment. They know they're strong. They know they're but, good. But and then he's still, even if all their guys get dropped, even if all but, their guys get dropped, Pogacar's probably still going to win because he's just he's brimming with confidence. And it, it's that they didn't need to take control of the race. And I think it's quite refreshing to see that. That attitude, but still he, that uh, he was the one. I, I agree. I mean, it also 
it goes to show what type of rider he is also Pogacar. But I think the way that they did end up riding it, he, I mean, it was in the exact moment that, uh, was it Formula who, who, or I think it was Formula who did the last pull. Yeah, Formula yeah. did the last and, pull on, and then the, it was, on that so, sort of, on that really lethal yeah. run into the Chivilion. And, and, yeah, well, yeah. and then also luckily for, for Pogacar, and I think that supports Dan's argument really well, because the tempo, there, it wasn't a, like it was a small attack. I think in, in Pogaccia terms, but then when Mas came, it was a proper like he threw a proper bomb. That I think you know, basically, it, it, if he had any chance to sit there, Mingegaard was gone, and and the other climbers, you know, like Higita and and and, and those guys, they were gone as well. But that was more because of Mas's attack than it was because of Pogaccia's acceleration. As, as we said earlier, it's Pogaccio would have been quite happy sprinting the first time through the finish line, even though there were still 30 riders there. Like, he was quite, he's that, mm-hmm. So even if he went to the line with that, in that group of eight behind with 10 guys, he, he probably would have still won the sprint. So it's, uh, he didn't need to put this big attack or have the team that, in fact, having more riders longer into the race, it would actually work better. And then I think they also know that the, the, the speed of the race would just eat up, even if some, a group did get away the speed of the fight for position would just ease up any gap and then he could easily take 30 seconds out of anybody on Treviglio, 40 seconds even. So it was, um, yeah, they rode, I think it's something that we've actually, UAE after the Tour de France performance, they made some tactical mistakes, I think on that Glibier stage, but I think this this one, this race, they did it perfectly. It, it did underline how strong UAE are on certain types of course. I mean, in terms of their climbing, the puzzle and they're climbing kind of teams certainly bearing in mind that Brandon McNulty and a couple of others weren't there and Mark Soler wasn't there it seems that the puzzle is almost complete I mean I have talked a few times this year about how in recruitment terms what they got wrong at the start of last year was they didn't sign another kind of experienced ruler and when Matteo Trentin couldn't ride the Tour de France then that left them exposed and it left them short on that score we still haven't heard any news um, about any such rider joining for next year. I'm, I'm sort of loath to look through, look at, you know, Giro Lombardia 2022 through the prism of the 2023 Tour de France. But Dan, do you think they do need to address that over the winter? I think it's a pattern we're seeing in many teams now that the, the experience in the peloton road captain role is disappearing. And um, because the team directors are taking much more control of their riders and telling them what to do. And you need more that the big horsepower engine who, who will just sit in the wind all day rather than having an experienced road captain. And I think they're very much in a development process as far as they've got guys like Mikael Bjerg and, and, uh, and other riders in the, in the, yeah, McNulty in the team who can sit in the wind all day and just, and they, it's the race has changed because it, it the peloton's changed. It's it's less about reading a race now and more about just setting up your stall in the front position and just sitting there all day. And that's why you don't see this arrowhead peloton anymore. You see a square-fronted peloton because you've got 10 teams who who have all got a group of riders who are strong enough just to sit in the wind from kilometre zero to the end. So it's just the dynamics of the group have just changed. So you don't need anybody that... You just need strong guys. You don't need anybody that can read a race like Matteo Trentin can. I think that's an excellent point. And also, I mean, it, this is an, it's a cliche that we often discuss. Is it the riders or the, or the parkour that make the race? And in this case, it's actually a, a transition that's, that's happened at the same time with, with you know, less time, time kilometers and more, I would say, controlled mountain stages where the strongest guys potentially win anyways. And there's a financial, a way of a financial 
not redistribution because they're not giving each other money, but because because there are more wealthy teams now, there are there are potentially four or five almost complete teams at the tour who can do more or less the same thing. Brian, this race was sort of billed as a big battle, the rematch really between Tadej Pogacar and Jonas Vingegaard. Vingegaard coming off a win in his comeback race, Tour of Croatia. And prior to that, he'd sort of disappeared after the Tour de France victory. Uh, L'Equipe had an interview with him on the morning of the race in which, well, it also quoted something Vingegaard had apparently said to Danish TV at the end of August, namely that winning the Tour could lead to a kind of mental explosion. And I think some people outside Denmark had maybe seen this and extrapolated and, and assumed that he was suffering some kind of breakdown, which I don't think was the case um, at all. But you both spoke last week about his relative lack of preparation. And I suppose it hadn't really occurred to me until I listened to you in particular last week, Dan, talking about how people used to use the Vuelta almost as preparation for Lombardy, how much preparation um, could potentially or needed to potentially go into a big... 250 kilometer classic i mean did we see that lack of racing and that lack of base maybe um at lombardy when he was dropped on the chivilio and he was he was well off the pace certainly i mean it was a respectable performance but he was certainly well behind pogaccio it's an even bigger confirmation than your, how you build up for como being the best race finish then was completely on the money the way i see it I and mean, when we saw the proof of it uh, on sunday Saturday, I mean, exactly. It's just there's nothing like doing those six and a half hour days racing. I mean, you can train all your life, but going that deep into a race and making those race race winning efforts that far into a race, it's it's something that I tried really hard to to really replicate in training before Liège was on Liège every year and concentrate mm. more on a collegial replicating the load. But then there's still you still need to go beyond that. And that's, I mean, often I would try and do Terreno Adriatico uh, as well as Catalonia before the Ardennes classes because you, you always had this big, the, the stage that prepared, like the guys would ride before Milan San Remo, the 220, 230, 240-kilometer stage in your legs just to get that, because you you race all and, year, and all yeah. year, well, all year you spend racing four to five hours. You very don't very often go a, like beyond that six-hour mark and that's where the race is won at Lombardia. And yet, Dan, it's kind of become fashionable to say one of the mantras of dogmas we've heard trotted out over the last few years is that training now can be equally good preparation and you don't really need to race as much. And the guys that, particularly at the altitude training camps, they're doing sometimes they're, they're going harder than, well, than uh, in races. I mean, do you remember does Daniel, that pertain more to stage racing? But Do you remember, yeah, on, do, do you remember when Ineos tried that uh, approach before the classics and they were absolutely absolutely nowhere near any kind of result that is true actually and, and for the for, classics and maybe for, there is a distinction between yeah, the classics and stage exactly. races and i think also don't forget that uh, this is a, a race that we decided like the winning move will be potentially after t- with 240 kilometers in the legs that's that's a completely different ball game and that's also why i think the world that you couldn't prepare that way for the world championships either you'd, you'd probably almost need to do the world and and the winner of the world this year certainly did and again, you said of Walter, you never race over five hours really at the Walter. So it is just mm-hmm. that depth of training, that depth of like repetition of effort, I guess, that it just gives you a condition. But there is a difference between a condition for a classic and a stage race. And but yeah, as you say, like every every year, it almost, it's almost contradictory a little bit that you, the Walter is the best preparation for Lombardia, but you never race above two hundred kilometers really. 
Dan, something I hear quite a lot from pros is that they work in, often they work in three-day blocks in terms of their training. And and that is one, if that is the case, I mean, I've certainly heard Mark Cavendish talk about this, that um, it, it'll almost be a rest day every fourth day in when he's training. Um, is that one, is that applicable to a lot of riders? And is that one key difference between doing a grand tour and doing three weeks of what you would normally call hard training at home or at a training camp. Yeah, definitely. That's generally how you work. And I think it's just a, it's more of a psychological thing than anything, because obviously you get the first hard day done and then you've only got two days to go. So it's an arrest day. And it's about, it's about that sustainability throughout a season, being able to continue to create that load over a long period of time. But I do think that when you go to a, there are more training has changed slightly now in order to replicate the a stage race type thing. Whereas you'd go, you'd go and do like a five day block with repetitive, repetitive load in order to yeah replicate what you, the load you do in a stage race. But yeah, as far as a, a, when it's a long training period of what obviously Vingegaard would have done leading up to Lombardia, he would have, uh, yeah, it would have, it would have been that when you you don't do that, obviously not. It's impossible to replicate a Grand Tour because obviously also during a, during the Vuelta, some days will be remarkably easy. If you do a sprint stage, you can average maybe less than a hundred watts some days. You know, because it's, it's you hardly touch the pedals until the last twenty kilometers when the pace mm-hmm. hops up. So that's almost acts as like a rest day as well. So it's it's those days, mm-hmm. it's those active rest days that you can't replicate in training. Dan, just finally, well, before we go on to talk more about Tadej Pogacar in the third part, but just on Enric Mass, I mean, he's had a fantastic end to the season, not just winning the Giro de Emilia, but also this resurgent Vuelta Espana where he came back from having all those problems at the Tour de France where he had this kind of, talking about mental breakdowns, where well, he sort of talks about having had one at the Tour de France. Problems with descending, I think we took, we spoke about it last week or a couple of weeks ago, how um, he'd, he'd been helped by various different specialists and, and he'd got himself back on track as far as descending was concerned. Descended you know, well at the weekend, we talked about how important that was going to be. But is this his level, Dan? I mean, you, I think you know him pretty well. You used to be his teammate. You, um, you all know him from Andorra as well. Is this where Enric Mass should be? Definitely. He's an incredible talent and he's, uh, it seems to be showing his potential, but I think it also shows he went back to the Vuelta knowing that he can podium there. And it, it's kind of, he, he went into the race with confidence and then he's drawn more confidence from that. And what happens after you've got a big result like that, you've got, he's kind of, you're, you're always, when you're, when you're a rider like Enrique, you're always in search of proving yourself. And especially being the team leader of the of Spain's team as a Spanish rider, he's trying to reassert himself as the best rider in Spain. It's like, that's what his ambition would be. Cause, and he's, uh, he's leading this team. He's got a lot of question marks over his head. A lot of these, yeah, people are asking well, what's going wrong with him. And now he's got second in the Vuelta and he came into these Italian classics with, riding high on confidence and I think he really is a great example of how getting a big result and ha- having the team also believing in him but also himself he's shown him he's proven to himself the weight's lifted and he's just racing his bike like like he can do now like his potential sh- and he's yeah it's going to be really interesting to see how he backs up again because obviously when you finish the season so well you automatically enter into the next year with ex- expectations incredibly high and those expectations always expect you to improve so he's going to go into races like, well, I don't know where he'll start, but 
potentially Pays Basque or Catalonia, these races, he'll go in and everybody talking about him as a favourite. And it's how you deal with that expectation, that renewed expectation to, because essentially you're forever trying to prove yourself. Shoot, uh, shoot that arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb PK, the voice of Radio Tour, and this is Lionel here to tell you that this episode is sponsored by the Hammerhead Carew 2 Cycle Computer. I'm here to tell the tale. Simon Gill and I made it to Dingwall, just north of Inverness. We completed our cycle tour of the Scottish football grounds and we did so following the yellow line on the Carew 2 cycle computer. The point-by-point, turn-by-turn directions are really, really easy to follow. You basically just follow the yellow line. And if you do go off course, there's none of that annoying... Uh, thing of being told to turn around the Karoo 2 will just join you back up with the original route as simply and easily as possible so it's very easy to just enjoy the ride and we really did enjoy the ride as the race director sorry as the route director it wasn't a race honestly I designed all of the stages but this time round I let the hammerhead dashboard do the bulk of the work I just put in the postcodes of all the football grounds we wanted to visit and I let the dashboard do the rest of the routing and our routes were really really quiet we were kept off all the major roads and so it's very pleasant cycling every day now since the first part of our tour back in april simon had actually bought himself a Carew 2 and so my little competitive edge that i had back then had evaporated somewhat because he also had all of the climber data at his fingertips so he knew when the climbs were coming up and how long they were and where the steep sections were so uh, we were very much equals on this ride this time round for a limited time all of our listeners can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a hammerhead crew too visit hammerhead.io and use the promo code cycle at checkout to get yours today basically add the two items the free heart rate monitor and the crew too to your shopping cart at hammerhead.io and then use the promo code cycle to get the heart rate monitor for free we'll put those details in the show notes the cycling podcast for the latest news views and interviews from the world of professional cycling two stages of ue tour and general classification strade bianche two stages of tirreno adriatico and the general classification two stages of the tour of slovenia and the general classification three stages of the tour de france the grand prix de montreal the tre valli varesine and il lombardia those are unless I've miscounted or miscalculated. Tadej Pogacar, 16 wins, chaps, this season. One more than Remco Evenepoel. He's the the winningest, loads I am to use that adjective, um, rider in the World Tour this year. 36% of UAE's victories. Yeah, only 54 race days. Um, but it's been an incredible season. Roman Bardet said to Lakeith um, after Lombardy that... Yeah, it's a career in itself. It, yeah, it is. It is. We'll come on to that in a second. Roman Bardet say, said in L'Equipe, um after Lombardy that Remco and Pogaccio are playing a different sport. Um, because of them, my generation's window of opportunity has closed. Um, he has 46 career victories now, more than Bardet and Thibaut Pino combined 
Um, just for another, another point of comparison, Vincenzo Nibali, who retired as one of the greats at the weekend, won 52 races in his career. So only six more than Pogacar has now. Couple more, couple more stats or another comparison for you to conjure with chaps. Um, he's Pog at the moment is almost exactly the same age as Eddie Merckx when Merckx won his first Tour de France in 1969. That was Merckx's second Grand Tour. Probably would have been his, his third had he not been kicked out of the Giro d'Italia for testing positive that same year, 1969. But by that time, Merckx had also won six monuments and a worlds. Um, Pog has now won three monuments, no worlds. Um, but I would say that Pogacar is well ahead on the score of one-week stage races, prestigious one-week stage races by this point. So just past his 24th birthday, Merckx had won one Paris-Nice, Tour of Romandie and Catalonia. Dan, you used to be Tade Pogacar's teammate. Um, he now takes the piss out of you on Twitter. I remember that from a few weeks ago. It was about your book as well, wasn't it? Was it? everything. Yeah, and, and it, it seems to be that anytime <laughs> I tweet something, he just has to have a dig. <laughs> right. So, you, But you went, well, before you tell us um, about the contact you have with him now, 2019, he turned pro at UAE. You were still there. What, what, tell us about your encounters with him that year and impressions of him. Well, it's actually it's actually something we talk about in the book because obviously I've known Tade since uh, the year before that. It was actually winter 2017 when I first joined UAE, and this kid showed up at training camp. This little wow, well, yeah, 17. it was uh, well, January 2018 actually to be precise. And this uh, little fat kid showed up from Slovenia from a training camp, and uh, I, to be honest, I saw a lot of myself in him, and just his whole enjoyment of racing. And that's where I think this comes from. He just, every time he gets pins a number on, he just wants to win and it's just fun for him. And that's also where the the whole piss tanking thing really started because he'd be literally riding in the middle of the peloton in the race, during the middle of the race in the yellow jersey of Tour de France. And I just go up to him and like, Tell him he does not very good or something like that, just to really mess with him a little <laughs> bit. And he'd, take, and he'd take it really lighthearted. Obviously, family shows i can't use the exact terminology i would use but uh but yeah it's it just just make random comments to him and just uh yeah obviously being teammates develop that relationship but i think just because i knew him from early age and almost acted not not i'm not taking credit but like as a i welcomed him, him into the team as the big rider and this joe junior shows up i think he really appreciated the fact that i made an effort to contact him talk to him and make him feel welcome in the team knowing that he'd signed for the following year and uh and that's where the relationship developed. And yeah, we only had the chance to race against each, well, with each other in 2019 at Tour of Basque Country. And he was, uh, yeah, we got second. I was second. He was fifth on in that on GC in that race. And we got the team prize because of our performances, helping each other every day. And then I tried to advise him as much as possible in his Walter, in his breakthrough Walter that year when he, uh, I gave him like, Root knowledge from the Andorra stage, which he went on to win, and uh, yeah, since then we've... you went there, were you? Dan? You went riding? No, no, I wasn't there. I was at home, and uh, right. but I, I knew the course obviously like the back of my hand, and it was uh, yeah, gave him all you the advice. Armchair quarterbacking for him. Tried, tried to, yeah, and obviously from then on, he doesn't really need any more help. He just kind of does his own thing. So I just have to try to keep him level-headed and take him down a notch every now and again, which I even fail to do that now because he just bites back even harder than I can the <laughs> shit I can give him. <laughs> and Dan, and right back then in 2018, I mean, you all have been in teams before when guys have arrived amid lots of hype. Did you already think that he was a bit different? I mean, over the course, like I say, over the course of that career that you had, 
there must have been other times when people arrived with the, the billing, uh, the status as, of kind of prodigies. He didn't really. He didn't really have much hype around him because he was so young still. I mean, he still had another year to go through in the U twenty threes, and uh, I didn't really know who he was or anything. He was just a he was just another like trainee at training camp. So, but I did see something different because uh, yeah, it is a little story we we tell in the, the in my book that we literally he um, we were playing around at training camp, attacking a little bit, and then he literally was the only guy to go over the top of me and attack me of the team and you know that's where i saw something different the fact that this little like well this kid was just like had the cheek to attack me or try to drop me and even then i had to struggle suffer to get back on his back onto his wheel you know and it just showed a different atmosphere a different attitude that he was just having a, having a good time on the bike and i think you see that still now that his, his love of racing means that he races from day one of the season to, de- to the last day of the season and wants to be, win every race he rides I mean, last week, chaps, we spoke about the perils and the folly now of sort of projecting forward and talking about the, the likelihood of, of dynasties developing because the turnover in this sport now is going to be so fast and there are going to be more 18 and 19-year-olds appearing on the scene and they're going to be rewriting what we construe as the likely history of this sport. However, however... Um, as we said earlier on, you know, you look at a race, a race like Lombardy and you look at his repertoire of abilities and it's difficult to see in a race like that. I mean, I tweeted at the weekend that it's difficult to see how fast the copy's record of five wins is going to survive the end of Tadej Pogacar's career. Um, I mean, Brian, what, what could what could derail this train? I mean, I don't, you know, obviously you don't want want to wish ill upon him. But the thing that strikes me about Pogacar, I mean, you just think about how few crashes he's had in these, well, since 2019. And he seems to be completely unfazed by stardom, completely unfazed by expectation, completely unfazed by disappointment. It's just very difficult to see how this train is not, is, is, is not going to just rattle along at the same pace or even pick up speed. Yeah, I mean, first of all, a note on, on what you said before that we sort of we we tend to invoke eras when a when a young rider wins his first Grand Tour, and we we I wouldn't say we made that mistake because there were obvious reasons why Benel uh, wasn't be able to be competitive for, for various reasons, crashes, etc., back problems. But the, I think still even in that generation of all those brilliant young talents, t- talents Pogacar still stands out for his all-round ability because you can't be successful all year uh, without being extremely versatile also in terms of terrain. And, and when you were going through the list of his wins this year, there, there might as well have been a Tour of Flanders, which is one thing is uh, say Liege or Lombardy in your Palmarès as a Grand Tour rider. That's extraordinary uh, in the same way that uh, winning me um, the classics that uh, Nibali has won. But the fact that he's able to ride cobblestone so well and the fact that he can time trial with the best of them, and it's not a weakness, not an Achilles heel for him in the Grand Tours. He can. I think the only thing that could derail his his way of being dominant is uh, you mentioned then that he he enjoys himself, he has fun doing what he does. I think it's it's only bound to stop at the point where he doesn't have fun anymore, where uh, he doesn't seem like a person who would enter sort of complacency or not be motivated in the same way that we've seen maybe has happened to Peter Sagan. I don't know what the mysteries of of his psychology are that's certainly the that's certainly the air that sagan started to give off yeah, at a certain point yeah. uh, of his career wasn't it yeah and i don't see i, I don't see pogacar uh, 
Sorry, just to finish, I don't see Pogaccia racing longer than he wants to with still being extremely competitive and winning the biggest races in the world. Whereas we've seen with, with uh, Sagan, he, he just keeps going and, and he's not really a, he's not a, he doesn't have an influence on the biggest races anymore. And I don't see Pogaccia going into his career and keeping on in a position that, in the way that, uh, in a losing position almost in the way that Sagan is not at all. It's like we talked about before, it's, and it's, at the end of the day, it's the reason why I retired. I was still competitive, but it's just what it takes to be competitive, and how long you're willing to do that mentally. And uh, as you say, it's it, today, as long as he can maintain this level of performance and wants to keep winning, he can keep winning. But as soon as he gets, you know, he might. I mean, it, how many races do you need to win before you start? You, you do need a new challenge and you do get bored. Like it sounds ridiculous yeah. to say that, but it, uh, it yeah, it, it's the hunger. It's only natural that the hunger subsides if you keep winning the same race. And that's, but that's where his team is embracing it, like letting him go to Tour of Flanders and try to win that race as well. So they are keeping it fresh. Exactly. Dan, one, two things that are often mentioned um, in this kind of discussion when sports people have a lot of success early on, um, potential pitfalls, potential dangers, things that could derail the train. Money, I'd like your thoughts on that because he's obviously a very rich boy at this point. And kids, you're both fathers, Brian and, and Dan. It, it hasn't derailed either of you so far. Um, Brian has Brian has the Brian, Brian has the odd wobble, but could either um, Tadej Pogacar is not he's not imminently going to become a father. I don't think he's going to get married um, in the near future. I think yeah, I think I'm right in saying. Correct me if I'm wrong. But what about those two factors? Yeah, I think what's important in Tadej's life is obviously because I know his uh, I know his girlfriend as well, his fiance Uska, and she's incredibly stable. And that's he's got this base around him that is he doesn't. But as far as I know, I don't really know much about his personal and how he's at home and all, life and all, how he's at home and et cetera. But the money is not really important. I think it's just a case of he's just loves racing his bike and he's not the guy going out, like enjoying the lifestyle. He just, he's got this hunger. And as you say, it's, it's how long that hunger persists. And I think getting beaten at the Tour de France could actually have been the thing that makes him more mm. like extends his career even longer because now he's tasted defeat and it's like, he's going to come back even, well, it, it's going to be a big challenge to see how he comes back next year. Does he come back better than ever? Because he's hungry. I think we've definitely seen a better Tadej Pogacar since July. I think he's come back. Uh, yeah. All guns blazing. He's definitely came out of the Tour de France more motivated and wanting to, like, as I said about the talking about Henrik Maas, wanting to prove himself again, because obviously everybody's questioning him now that he's been beaten. Dan, just quickly on that, one thing I remarked on this to someone at the Tour de France or a few weeks ago, one thing that no one ever mentions in relation to, to Tadej Pogacar is how hard he works. Now, we take it as read that all professional cyclists pretty much, anyone who's vaguely competitive works incredibly hard and suffers a lot. But it's not in the sort of playbook of the first three or four things that people talk about in relation to Tadej Pogacar. I mean, what, what, what would you just say on that? The thing is because they're very private about what they do. They're, they're, they're away on training camps all the time, but they're not posting about it all the time. They're not talking about all the sacrifice mm. and all that. They just they seem to focus a lot more on the actual results and the and how they win the race, not how they get to the start of the not how they get to the start line. 
Do you know what I mean, though? You know, if you talk about a Michael Jordan mm. or a Tiger Woods or an even a Roger Federer, it's always among the first things that people mention. Maybe to, with Federer to a lesser extent. But with Tade Pogacar, that is not, that's never been one of the things that have, have kind of come up when you've asked people, when you've pressed people for anecdotes or, or well, impressions. I, Go on, Brian. I think he's sort of what he, what, the, the, the miracle of Pogacar is because he combines two things that very few athletes or even artists um, having their personality you know i once talked to the the royal ballet in copenhagen and they said the biggest natural talents they never make it (laughs) yeah it's always it's always the second best but the hardest worker who will win and you know the story of ulrich better than anyone else and he probably was the biggest talent but lance worked harder than him and then you know obviously all kinds of other things went into to that uh, equation but I think the, the rare thing about Pogacar is he is more talented than potentially anyone. And, uh, you know, then you can, guys can go on and talk about Evan Nepal afterwards while I'm off the call. But I think he is more <laughs> talented than anyone, in, in, anyone in the sport right now. But he's probably also someone that still has the ability to work as hard as anyone else. So I think putting those two things together makes him extremely hard to beat. The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport, our long-term supporters. All of our listeners can get 25% off at scienceinsport.com with the discount code SISCP25. It's been a really big weekend for Science in Sport because, of course, they are nutrition partners for Ineos Grenadiers and the Science in Sport nutritionists Aitor Vidibay and Mark Fell were an integral part of Filippo Ganna's backroom team as the Italian prepared for the ultimately successful hour record attempt over the weekend. The Science in Sport nutritionist designed a nutrition plan to help ensure that Ganna was at his peak for the hour. And in fact, Science in Sport posted on Twitter at Science in Sport a few details, a few little insights into Ganna's pre-ride nutrition plan with some information about what he consumed the day before and on the morning of the attempt and in the final warm-up because, of course, Ganna couldn't take fuel on board during the hour attempt. Then came the all-important recovery and uh, makes some really interesting reading. I'm pretty sure that Filippo doesn't need to know what the discount code is, but for everybody else, it's SISCP25. Tiro, uh, 53 minutes now, 53 minutes, 24 seconds. It looks as though Filippo Ganna on current pace is just about going to meet Chris Boardman's mark. Um, is, is that exceeded your expectations or is it more or less what you expected? No, more or less, uh, uh, Daniel, can I, our listener can see this, but... Uh, I sent on Monday, last Monday, uh, a text message uh, to Sir Bradley Wiggins. He asked me how his train going, what distance is he aiming for, and oh, I said, I, I guess around uh, 57. You're so like a clever, uh, mystic hero. Yes, I mean uh, when uh, there are this kind of thing, and especially when I see that my holidays. Uh, are coming for the end of the month. I'm really mystic. Chiro, you know who you remind me of? Wanamarki. Do you know Wanamarki? Is this a, this yeah, is a good documentary, a good series Bata. on Netflix yeah, about yeah, an Italian kind of mystic fraudster called Wanamarki. But I don't sell anything to our listener, Daniel. I want only 
that they can enjoy our podcast. This is my only goal. Five minutes to go, let's concentrate. 59.36 now, celebrating in the track. These, the record of Dan Bigham has already been beaten and we're looking at 56.794 at the moment. I'll have to go now. I've rarely seen someone look as uncomfortable on a bike as Philippe Organa now. Still moving at 60 kilometers an hour, but looking extremely uncomfortable. just over a kilometer more than Dan Bigham and also well, the furthest anyone has ever traveled on a bike over an hour in a velodrome. Past Chris Boardman's historic mark. Well, after uh, 35 minutes, they say, okay, I, maybe I can do the 57k for hour, but then I uh, start to suffering a lot for the for the position, for the for, uh, for my also from my hole <laughs> and uh, another nah, nah, I say okay it's done uh, it's important though something special but that uh, what I think in the in the start if I do I do in the future when uh, before we retire and like a Wiggins but uh, I don't think before well chaps that was a little taste of my adventure my trip to the other side of the cycling universe um, at the weekend my trip to Grenken which nearly didn't happen because I got to the station on Saturday morning and my trip to Basel was cancelled I still managed nothing would get in my way um, I was I was very much committed to this trip to the velodrome in Grenken and I did see Filippo Ganna make cycling history setting a new world hour record of 56 kilometers 700 and what was it 792 yeah 92 centimeters centimeters yeah no meters meters meters, sorry uh (laughs) god i'm so out of my depth when it comes to track racing i don't i don't know the right vocabulary chaps i don't know i was i was i was a mess in there in that velodrome um dan you're not the you're not the biggest track cycling aficionado i only say this because you know the story about you was that you didn't join the british academy because you didn't really you weren't necessarily that enthusiastic about going through their their track based heavily track based system is that right i like having brakes on my bike to be honest and gears and stuff like that it's kind of it it's never made sense to me to have to drive to go ride my bike and living in the Midlands, obviously driving two hours up to Manchester. Oh, I love this. This is the kind of content I love. Exactly. Yeah. yeah this is a, this is a real debate. But also, I mean, it's just it never really made sense to me how you stay up on the banking either. I mean, to put it simply. Obviously, there's all types of physicists up there, but it's just, uh, yeah. I just never. I, I enjoyed feeling the sun on my skin and just being out in the rain and just leaving the leaving your house and coming back to your house i think that was the it was that element of freedom and not being restricted by riding in circles but i did have a question did you get where did you stand did you get dizzy uh no i stood in the middle 
stood in the middle and um no i mean it was it was a great experience it was you know history being made um there was a lot of layers to this story a lot of really interesting layers there's kind of the italian heritage in the hour record the hour record itself has always seemed like a discipline apart because it's always attracted road or traditionally it attracted the best road riders and you know often go back to the 90s that's a very fertile period for the hour record they were they were wearing riding their trade team kits so it was almost like you know it was a taste of the road world um on the track so and then you know this this latest project that Ineos Grenadiers have undertaken with bringing Dan Bigham on board and that is a, a fantastic story the the Dan Bigham story the hoop what bike story these kind of mavericks these maverick boffins which who reinvented track cycling and were sort of taken on by Ineos um, if you can't beat them, then join them kind of thing. And they played a huge, huge part in this hour record. Dan Bigham did, um, Dan Bigham's colleagues at Hugh, Hugh Watt Bike. And um, and it was a, it's a sort of a marriage of two worlds, really, with the Italian, the resurgence of the tra- Italian track scene as well, led by Marco Villa, again, against the odds. Um, Italian track cycling has been in the gutter for a long time. And really, Marco Villa and a, a few other individuals, Elia Viviani, people like this, they have they have hauled it um, to not just respectability, but to immortality. And, well, I will tell these stories, chaps, in a cycling podcast friend special which is going to drop in the next few days or uh, in a week or so and i'm going to tell all these stories and going to tell the story of my day in switzerland in grenken and um, what a memorable one it was as well and brian did you follow Filippo ganna's exploits of the weekend no no i didn't i was uh i, I was uh, <laughs> no no sounding very bored <laughs> I was, already yeah you're walking me off now so yeah i uh, no i was out uh, i can't tell you with whom but i was out for very very late night drinks in uh, in the deep dark bars of of Como on uh, on Saturday, and we I, we started early, so it was all lost upon me. I do find it a little bit sad though, you know, because it's, it's it's people saying it's put it on the shelf now. You know, there's a there's definitely there's been this era of record breaking, and now I don't think anybody's going to even try for a while, for a long while. I'm not sure, Dan. There are murmurs of other riders at Ineos Grenadiers having a pop relatively soon. I don't know if it's on the shelf. Um, it certainly put a big, well, a big layer on top of Dan Bigham's mark and even a layer on top of Chris Boardman's mark. But I, who, who would you guess at Ineos Grenadiers if I said to you that, that there was a rider or multiple riders who might try relatively soon? Who, do you, who would be the first name that came into your mind? I'd say Hater. It's not, yes, Hater, it's not Agamber now, um, just, just before <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you suggest him. Um, well, chats, I sense that your appetite for talking about the hour record is slightly, well, slightly less than your appetite was for talking about the um, Giro in Lombardia. So we'll move on, we'll stay in Italy, but we'll move on to another race, another event that happened at the weekend, the inaugural World Gravel Championships in Cittadella in the Veneto. And that was very interesting from for, for lots of different reasons. We mentioned uh, Ferrand Prévost winning the women's race and Gianni Vermeer winning the men's race. And... Well, it was a trailblazing event, literally trailblazing, because some of it was on single track walking paths, effectively. But also, we've never seen the UCI um, authorise, sanction, um, endorse a gravel event before, gravel world championships before. And there was a lot 
to conjure with and from the way it was filmed um things that people didn't like about the way it was filmed the way that the whole event embraced what has been this this sort of fringe gravel scene that's been building um over the last few years away from the establishment of you know uci disciplines uci um the the sort of uci road world and mountain biking world and yeah how how the event itself embraced that community didn't embrace that community i mean dan you watched it i know you knew some people who were involved you knew some people who were riding what are your sort of your your fag packet kind of bullet points on what you saw at the weekend I think the main bone of content is, is trying to put some distance between itself and it effectively becoming a long cyclocross race, I guess. And with the, yeah, obviously gravel has developed this culture and people are quite restrictive against the UCI putting their putting their face on it, I guess, and trying trying to it, it was it did attempt to maintain the identity of gravel with the obviously no team cars and all that type of thing, but. It was, I think, having essentially this rainbow jersey, will we ever actually see it worn? And if not, what's the point in having a rainbow jersey? And it, it's, and also there's this qualification process whereby I think it was one of the main bones of contention among the, among the gravel riders who've ridden the World Series that's been all year round, all this year, getting points. I, I assume, I don't know for a fact, but I assume there is a gravel world ranking system now in the UCI. And then suddenly the start procedures, they, they, they obviously wanted the, the star road riders to be on the front row and give them give them the advantage of starting at the front, which in a 140 rider peloton, I think it was 150 rider peloton, is obviously a massive, massive advantage when it's such a narrow terrain. But yeah, yeah. It's, I think it was a beautiful you race. You can understand it from one point of view. Yeah, it, yeah. scenically it was beautiful uh but obviously i think we need to hear from I haven't heard much from the actual gravel riders i've been watching social media and seeing what they're how they reacted to it because it obviously i imagine it did it didn't actually have have the same feeling of these big american races that we're seeing that have, have put this scene on the map effectively yeah, it was interesting. Well, there was this issue in the in the closing stages of the race as well, where there were there were other races going on or had started earlier in the day. The, the Masters race, for example, was and they were still on the course because it was a circuit, and there was there was a lot of concern that the sort of the stragglers, I suppose, of the Masters race would interfere with what was happening with what well, it was Daniel Oss and Gianni Vermeers who were away on their own, and that there was concern that they would get. Um, held up but then i also heard something this morning from someone who is well kind of ensconced in the gravel world that 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 they see that and what other others might regard as the kind of shambolic nature of that as part of the kind of charm of gravel racing that it is a lot more it has a lot more in common with sort of mass participation adventure races whether it be ultra trail running races um than it does necessarily what we recognize as a conventional road race so again it's this yeah. kind of clash of two cultures exactly. but the thing is um, but the, the gravel races that are now marquee events uh, say in the in the u.s uh, mostly are way harder a lot longer and a lot more uh, probably potentially also well, more well organized than than the uci world championships and the thing is that it, it the clash of two cultures i think is, is really important here because the uci brings structure it brings or should bring TV production, you know, prestige of the rainbow jersey, but then it clashes with this 
culture that's very independent and that that has a big following elsewhere. And I'm and I'm not sure that this is a uh, that match is there yet. It can be, but it it'll need a lot of development. It'll need a lot of development for as as you were asking for the rainbow jersey to be visible in those other marquee races, which is highly doubtful as it stands. So I think it, it, there's a lot of work still in, in that culture clash for it to really work together because they are really very different different things, different elements, different beasts. I think it does come down to this. I think the nature of gravel as well, from what I understand, it's very self-supported. And as soon as the UCI puts its stamp on, then you've got, you've got riders who weren't, I believe some of the guys were not even riding gravel bikes. They were just road bikes with, with big tires. And it's this whole image of, I think, guys stopping at feed zones together and re- re- like getting and stuff like this, you know, that's, it's very, even fixing your own flat tires, that's something that potentially would be lost if this becomes, when you get bigger budgets and teams coming, even the, the team work ethic that I think Matthew Van Der Poel refused to work behind because he had his trade mm. team teammate up in front. It wasn't even a national team, right? It was his trade team teammate in, in the breakaway. So it's it's kind of, that's that's very much away from the, the accessibility that I think that's brought so many fans to the gravel scene. Yeah, there's well, there'll, be a, there'll eventually be a bunch of rules if the UCI gets their hands on it going onwards. There'll be nothing but rules. Yeah, and, and there is this question of the it becoming more the more professional and the more sort of sanitized and sterile, but also well organized it becomes, maybe the less relatable it becomes. Um, it's funny, I was talking the other day to a world tour professional. We were talking about a, a silly running running event that I'm doing in a couple of weeks, a vertical kilometer race. And there, there are a lot of kind of a lot of manufacturers, um, shoe manufacturers. They they will put out viral clips of this kind of thing and. The, what this rider was saying to me is that in running and, and that kind of novelty, what some people would see as novelty events, they're very relatable in the sense that people look at these clips and they can see that someone's just showed up with their running shoes and, and, and run up a mountain. And gravel, the gravel world has had that about it. And that is one thing that it, it has had over world tour road cycling. And there were elements of that um, at the weekend. You know, you, you almost felt that someone... Um, taking their dog out for a walk on a Sunday might get knocked off by Daniel Oss, you know, heading towards a world title. And um, there, there, there was something that we, it, we see, it felt kind of ad hoc and dilettantish um, at times, but that also makes it more relatable. Yeah, but also one, I mean, one thing that I think it, it, luckily it's something that's not at, at the at the top of mind when you talk about cycling anymore. But you also have you know maybe ten, twenty world tour riders racing next to people who. who probably never have had a doping test in their life. They certainly don't have a biological passport. So I think there's, there's a lot of things True. I think that, that, that should potentially be a little bit more structured in terms of who can participate in what. And, and it could be that 10 years from now, this will, this, uh, this will be just as integrated in how we look at other disciplines as, say, like cyclocross has come to be as it is now or, or some of the big track events. So it, it, it just takes time. It's just that I'm not surprised that UCI wants to own anything. I mean, they... They, they they run cycling football, I guess, also indoor cycling football. So they want their mitts on anything cycling and they want to try and make money off of it. But I, I hope that, that element of independent uh, events, racing, especially those in the States, like, you know, Dirty Cancer or Leadville or, or whatever they call, they'll keep their identity and it'll be some races that that'll have their own kind of life next to this. Or yeah, we'll see how that all uh, pans out. It just depends on the manufacturer's desire to in, to 
put the two together. I think in a few years' time, I think you're right. It will just become part of the race calendar, and you'll just it'll be a very similar start list to what we see at the at the Road World Championships. It'll just be the same guys because if somebody coming out of the Vuelta España, and then these the World Tour riders are the best bike climbers in the world, and they're still going to be able to ride on gravel, but they've just got that extra bit of horsepower from riding the World Tour calendar, and it's going to be impossible for somebody riding a full gravel season to compete with them on a physical level. So it will just become two separate calendars. There'll be a gravel scene, and then there'll be this one-off gravel race at the end of the year, which is just an elongated version of Strada Bianchi, in my opinion. I think that's where it will go, and it will just become alienated from the, It will just become disjointed. Well, chaps, I think that concludes this week's entertainment, although not for those who are lucky enough to get their hands on Dan's book um, from Thursday. Is that right, Dan? Yeah, everybody should have it. Pre-orders are open, but then, yeah, it should hit the shelves and hit your mailbox, I imagine, on uh, on Thursday. Excellent. Brian, you're also finishing a book today. Tell I'm us finishing. quickly about that. Yeah, yeah I'm finishing. I, I did diaries during the tour, and um, I've been editing those and adding photos from Ashley and Jerry Gruber, my friend photographers, who worked the world tour, and then that should be... Yeah, I'm, I, I need to finish it today, basically, because it's going to be out uh, in the first week of November. Well, I, thank God, have no books on the go at the moment. Praise be. But I will be back next week with a special episode, a sort of review of the season come retrospective 2022 self-portrait by two current world tour pros. Uh, lucky Larry Warbass will be one of them. I can't reveal the identity of the other one yet. But tune in next week for that. In the meantime, I'm going to say goodbye, Al Wiedersehen, and all the best with the books, chaps, to Dan. Cheers. Cheers. See you already. Thanks, Dan. And, and to Brian. Thank you very much. Thanks to both of you. Thanks, Brian. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Byrne. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.